welcome back to series two of the Ben Ryan podcast. And I'm delighted to say that I'm kicking it off with Olympian and former world champion athlete Liz McColgan. Liz had a glittering career in athletics, both on the track in the 10,000 metres and the road in the marathon. And on top of world titles, she's also a double Olympian, double Commonwealth champion and multiple marathon winner. In fact, her story around her debut marathon competing and winning the New York Marathon on the back of no specific marathon training is one of those must-listens coming up. And from her early days growing up and the hurdles she overcame to succeed to her coaching herself in some of those biggest victories, even training in a sauna in Scotland, it's all on its way. We also talk drug use in sport and the grey areas around technology creeping in as well. She is now coached to others, including her daughter, Ailish, a world-class athlete too, and on her way to the Tokyo Olympics as we speak. It's a great listen, and we start with her own origin story and those first experiences of competitive running. First running experience I had was when I participated in the Dundee Schools cross-country. It was my first race, and it was the first time that I'd ever succeeded at anything there's about 250 girls and all from all over the schools and whatever in Dundee and um, I won it and won it by quite a bit and it was the first time that I realized that what I was feeling and what I was doing was a, a better standard than I thought if you know what I mean you know, I just thought everybody was running at the same level as me and whatever and it really kind of uh, it was a surprise you know the fact that you know I was so far ahead and that I'd won by so much and yet I felt so easy and it just really, um, it kind of really just encapsulated me into, you know, what running was. And um, it kind of really, like, motivated me and, like, really gave me a buzz. So it was the first time that I'd, I'd sort of, like, been successful and wanted anything. And, and anybody take notice of you as well, by the way. You know, sort of, I, I was from a sort of a council estate and a lot of the kids were just, like, ignored and whatever because we came from sort of, like, the wrong side of town. And when I won it, it was, like... You know, everybody's wanting to congratulate you and, and I enjoyed the praise that I was getting because I'd won and things like that, which I'd never experienced in anything like that in my life before. And it was just something that really drew me to running and it was like, you know what, I, I really like this. I like what I'm doing and I think I could be better at it. And um, that's kind of like, just kind of what engaged me. Were you 12, did you say, at that time? Yeah, I was 11 going on 12, yeah. Um, I just went up to secondary school and um, I'd never really experienced running or anything like that before, not trained or anything like that. The reason that we, I got selected was we, um, we had class races and um, I used to sort of be in the top two or three in the class and whatever. And I'd probably be the only one that would actually do the thing without walking. And um, the PE teacher was a marathon runner, so he used to just set us out and all this sort of stuff. And But I just really enjoyed it. And um, I think running for me is something that really uh, suits my mindset. I think I'm quite strong-willed. The training zone that you need to get into for to be running, it really suits me. I'm quite a solitary person. I don't need social running. You know, I like to run on my own. A lot of thought processes go through my head. And even when I was a child, that happened. So I like to keep myself to myself and, you know, do my own thing. I had a lot of issues when I was growing up in the area that I was growing up and I didn't want to be involved in a lot of stuff. So for me, running gave me that sort of escapism that I needed to get out of what was going on around me at the time as a kid. Looking back, I didn't know what it was or, you know, what it was that attracted me to it or, you know, but 
you know, now that I'm older and wiser and kind of understand things a lot better, I can see why it suited me. Like a little safe haven for me to do what I needed to do. There seems to be a bit of a thread immediately that I'm, I'm picking up that when you were 12 or 11, sorry, going on 12 and you, and you didn't really, you kind of were a little bit overwhelmed perhaps about how easy it was to canter away and win that race. But then I've also heard you talk about how, you know, the volume of training that you did was also very high. You know, I think you said even as a 16 year old, you were, you were knocking what, 70 miles plus in a week and that doubled, did it at your peak perhaps? Yeah. I just, I just see that, and then also there's, you know, your your greatest victory probably was in '91 in Tokyo at the World Champs, and and again that was, you know, there was that second place wasn't wasn't really in, in the camera shot, and you've I've also heard you talk about how you've managed to just do lots of sessions without injuries, how you never hit that wall that a lot of marathon runners would hit. So do you see that? as a thread that you've had all through your career that's now going into your coaching that your ability is kind of shining a light to show you is your why is your driver well first of all like um as a coach my whole mindset is completely different as to what it was when I coached myself because I know that if I I coach people the way I coach myself we won't last very long (laughs) (laughs) and the one thing that I've learned as an individual and and through trial and error of being a self-coached athlete is that Everyone is an individual and not one shoe fits all. You know, you've got to be adaptable. You've got to be able to get in the head of the person that you're coaching and make them you know, do a program that makes them the best that they are capable of being and not what you perceive as the best just of an endurance program because everybody adapts and everybody's got strengths and weaknesses that are completely different. So you've got to be able to individualise a training program to benefit the person that you're actually coaching. But going on myself as a youngster, you know, a lot of my younger days, I, I didn't know what I was doing. Um, you know, the reason I was able to run 70 plus miles as a teenager was because, you know, I couldn't afford the bus fare to go to training or the bus fare back from training. And so, you know, I used to run. So I used to run to training and run back. So, you know, I always, I always sort of like, uh, I kid myself to like the Kenyans without even really knowing it, you know, you know, the Kenyans run to school and they run back from school. Well, that's what I did. So I did it without really realizing that I was building a base. And I think that's why I was so robust as an athlete, because, you know, I did build it up very gradually from a very young age. So, you know, a lot of people, when they go to the marathon, they suddenly go from doing very low miles into doing lots and lots of high miles. Well, you know, I had a big progression over 20 years of just building and building and building and building. You know, I didn't just jump in and start doing miles. I'd always been a miles person. So my body was robust and I was doing things that my body was used to doing. So I really think that was a big high dependency of not getting injured. Um, I also, you know, did take into, you know, I I used to believe a lot in stretching, a lot in strength and conditioning. And I was doing all that when I was younger. You know, I was in the circuits, I was in the stretching, I was, you know, into visualization without even realizing it. So there's a lot of things that I did that I didn't really know I was doing. But, you know, now that I'm older and wiser, I now realize that I was doing it, although I was doing it quite incidentally and, and not really understanding it, it was very productive for me for an endurance runner at the end of the day. And, you know, I, I think that, you know, because I was self-coached, um, I, I learned a lot about what endurance running is. You know, I did have a coach until I was like 17 and he educated me a lot on the, the what endurance running was. That like He used to sit me down and say why I was doing a session, what the reason was, what the outcome was. And, you know, if I 
you know, every now and again I'd do a session, whatever you say, well, you know, what was the feedback, you know, what could you do better and all that sort of stuff. So I, I got all that when I was like 11, 12, 13. So I took on board everything that this, um, you know, Harry Bennett, my, my first coach, um, told me. And it kind of just educated me right on to being, uh, you know, a really good, I, I believe a really good, strong endurance runner and individual um, when I got to 1920. And then, you know, obviously um, I went on and did, you know, some some good things in my running. But um, I think my early years really, really helped me as a coach more than anything because I learned so much as a youngster off with Harry Bennett. And then when he died when I was 17, you know, it was all about, you know, I, I was always reading books about training and, you know, um, and I, I just really educated myself along the way as to, you know, what I thought was best and what I didn't think was best for me then. There's quite a lot there I'd, I'd quite like to to delve a little bit deeper on. But one of the threads that I, th- I think is quite important that probably moves you from both as athletes, as coaches, that you were talking about that your coach back when you were a teenager would connect why you were training. So it, it wouldn't just be like you're going off to do your reps or you're doing this amount. It'd explain it to you. And then would you have to have also kind of agreed that, OK, yeah, I get that and I'm going to do it. Or did you ever at any point go, that doesn't sound right or I'm not feeling that today? I was always asking questions. Yeah. Oh, but you know what? He always had the answer, and I always think a great coach. Uh, if you don't know the answers, then you know you, you don't know what you're doing. Every coach should know the answers to what sessions that they're doing, and you know every athlete should ask the question because at the end of the day, because of what happened to me, I know that there comes a time where the coach won't be there, and you've got to be able to stand alone and think on your own two feet. I'm not a coach that that likes to attach myself to an athlete because I feel that, you know, you need to be strong-willed and you need to be able to deal with things that sometimes they don't go right and you've got to be able to make a decision. Your coach can't make that decision for you. So, you know, I've always seen coaching as a partnership, but the partnership is to give all the skills to enable that athlete to be as strong both mentally and physically as they can be to go into a race or a coaching programme and understand what they do because you know sometimes the coaches can't be there for instance if we go to Tokyo a lot of the individual coaches now are not going to be able to go there so a lot of athletes are not going to be able to cope very well because they've never been to a championship without the coach at their side you know and I don't work like that you know I I always give space to my athletes and you know I always I always like them to think in the last minutes before a performance they've got to make decisions I don't make them does that link into your philosophy then? Is that, I mean, one of my major points as a coach is I like to think I would like to make myself redundant. So go to a big cup final or Olympic Games and I don't need to be there. I can be in the stand having a beer because the team know what they're doing. Is that, is that your kind of end goal? Does that mean that it drives some of your processes? Yeah, it is. It's to, it's to develop a person who is so robust all round that they can cope with whatever the situation. You know, I'm not a coach that is there for... Um, I mean, I'm obviously there, um, you, you know, when things don't go wrong and they need, you know, a, a little bit of, you know, comfort and support and whatever, because things don't go right all the time. But, you know, even in those situations, I like them to deal with them, you know, as as well as they can. And I think sometimes, you know, if you come too reliant on a coach, it's it's not a good predicament to be in. I, I always like my athletes to um, be able to cope with any situation so that it doesn't affect their performance because if you're so used to a coach being there and telling you A, B, C, D, E, F, G and then for some reason, you know, um, for whatever reason that coach isn't there, the panic sets in and then, you know, it, it unravels the, pre- the preparation for that athlete. It's like, well, what do I do? Where do I go? And, and then there's a sense of like panic or whatever and, you know, you can't have that before 
you know, a qualification of a championship or um, a heat or whatever. So, you know, you've got to install a really strong coping mechanism for your athletes. And, you know, I'm a firm believer in that. So, you know, I'll purposely, um, you know, turn up late to a session or I'll throw some, you know, spanner in the works and so that they do have to deal with situations because it does happen in real life you know and um and i was always a person myself that you know i was very um good at coping um if anything was thrown in my way it didn't distract from what my end goal was or what my main aim was you know i was always able to be calm and collective and just deal with it with all of us as coaches there's an element of our egos coming into play sometimes and that you want to be that coach that allows the athlete to think for themselves and and problem solve but if you suddenly see when there's a crunch moment and you think that you can intervene can you be strong enough to hold hold that back or or what how do you do you have an ego does it does it ever get in the way as a coach no I, my my whole philosophy of coaching is that it's it's coach supported and athlete led it's always the athlete that is you know and sometimes it's quite difficult for me because i've been such a successful individual athlete and especially you know when i train my daughter and her starting off, you know, everybody wanted to know about me. And I was like, no, it's not about me. Here's an individual here that's like, you know, rising up the ranks and it's about her. You know, it's not about me. Like if I was any other coach, you wouldn't be asking me or you wouldn't be, you know, like a situation where she'd go and run a race and they'd call her Liz. Hmm. And it's like, no, she's not Liz, she's actually Ailish. <laughs> you know, it's Liz's daughter. And, and so, you know, there's a lot of issues like that. And and I think that, um, you know, in, in, my, in my own personal opinion, it's never about the coach. You know, it's it has to be about the athlete and the performance. Yeah, and do you do so not just with Ailish, who's you know a double Olympian and uh, and has medaled in indoor champs and at the Euros? Do you, do you ever lean on any of your experience though that you can give them as some of your tips or tools that they can use? I mean, I don't think that everyone has to be like an international athlete or a successful sports person to be a great coach. But I do feel that if you have been, it just brings an extra edge to you. You know, it brings an extra bit to, to your table that you can offer your athlete because there's nothing more, you know, the, to understand what it feels like to stand on that line, at, you know, an Olympics or um, a World Championships or even a British Championships. But to actually stand on that line and to go through the whole protocol of, you know, the warm-ups, uh, you know, the different uh, issues that you, you get for your call-up um, when you're standing on the line and what you feel like. You ha you know the exact feeling, but then when you've actually went and actually won at the very, very top as well, that also brings an extra, you know, um, piece of, uh, I would say, inside information that, that you can really relate to the person and really give them a bit of um, insight as to how to cope with it. It's good to have that experience um, and bring that with you as a coach. Um, and I, I think in my my own personal case that it's really helped me and helped my athletes a lot to know that, you know, I've dealt with that and I've been there and I've done it, but, you know, I'm helping you as best I can and this is my advice. There were a couple of different things that I, I, I wanted to pick up on because you talked about um, having to run to various places before you actually had to run, you know, and that clocked up your mileage. And, and I'm sure some, some coaches will be pulling their hair, hair out hearing that. Um, but it gave you that resilience and robustness that um, is obviously something that you've had all the way through your life then on, on being, having to 
tough it out when you were younger, not having things available that others might have had. How do you, how would you, I've had this a lot. How do you install that with athletes that perhaps don't come from that background that have a, have everything on a plate, but they still need to have that resilience. They still need to have that robustness for, for toughing it out. I believe that it's a different robustness. Yeah. Because like if you, if you've had like a really tough upbringing and someone's not had that upbringing, it's not something you can teach because the reason that you've got that is because it's a safety mechanism as a youngster that you've created because you've been in a situation that's been quite difficult for you and you've got to have that, you know, single-mindedness to deal with it and to blot things out and whatever. And that's not taught. But people that are born to easier lives, you know, it, it's still a mental toughness that everybody has to grasp and learn and I think as you train and you get fitter even your training creates that because you're never going to be so confident and mentally especially ready when you know that you're 30 seconds off of the winner so as you as you start training and you start getting better and fitter and whatever your motivation to then achieve higher positioning medals or whatever that may be it makes you more motivated and makes you more mentally tough to deal with that as well so it's like a progression through a grown up in your training program as well you know as you mature and get older people can develop these skills but I don't think it's the same skill set as what is learned as if you're in a different situation of being in an environment that isn't safe or um, productive that what you need to learn to be a survivor in that kind of situation as to what you learn to be a survivor in an athletic world. It's two completely different things. And I guess as you moved through and got older, there were more resources available to you and more shiny things that could add to what your core was of, of going out onto the roads and, and, and running hard. As a coach now, where do you stand on that Um technology and bringing other other resources in do you still see that as the shiny stuff or is there anything that you lean towards now that you think is really useful to help you improve the athlete as a coach the big eye-opener for me was when I was like about 20 I used to do like this visualization thing I've done it from a kid but I didn't really know what I was doing and then I met a guy who um, wrote a book a guy called Jack Black who did Mind Store and he met me, he came to my house or whatever, and he says, well, I've got this great thing to teach you. And I'm like, oh, yeah, okay, come along, whatever. And then when he was in the house, he was like, oh, my God, like, you're already doing it. He says, but what we could do is, is explain what it is you're doing so you understand what you're doing. Because at the time, I didn't really understand, you know, what I was doing. And, and I'm a really big believer of um, how you're using your visualisation or more mental approach to success in sport. Um, it's quite overlooked. And I think that if some people could untap what the brain is capable of doing, as well as the physicality of what you're doing, um, you know, a lot of people could be a lot better athletes. And for me, I think, you know, learning those tools is um, something that, you know, that I try to encourage athletes to do so that, you know, they, they, they gain confidence and learn how to unlock a lot of insecurities that they've got in their head because what well, as an athlete um you know I always remember when I was like 12 and 13 I'd go along to attract me or whatever and I'd be like okay I'm gonna win it and then I'd see this tall skinny girl with a pair of yellow Nike shoes on I'd be oh she's got good shoes on I might be second 
and then I'd see somebody else that'll look better because they've got like you know some nice tracksuit on. I think, oh, I'll be third, and I used to talk myself out of it, mm. you know, before you even got on the start line. And there's a lot of people that do, you know, they don't firmly believe that they're that they're as good as the people on the start line. And and if you can learn tools to stop that negativity, especially as you go into a call room or you know on uh, when you're, you're sort of uh, going through the last preparations of on getting on the start line, that you just focus on yourself and what's right for you. It could be the difference in night and day. So there's a lot of different tools I think now that as we're in 2021, that as a, a sort of a, a an older coach myself now, there's a lot of tools now that you can actually use to enhance performance, which unlock and a lot of other things as well that you can use to make you the more all-round physical and mental athlete you need to be. I think a lot of listeners will find it weird for us to be talking about athletes and sportsmen and women that have dedicated their entire life and often you know that four-year cycle going to the Olympics or going to a major competition there's nothing else and and it's all consuming and then they get to the actual the moments before the days before and there's some self-sabotage sometimes with with athletes where they actually start to find reasons to underperform or to uh, or to or to or to give away all of that hard work that they've just done um have you have you seen that and have you, uh, have you have you got any tips for people because i'm sure a lot of people will be listening to this and they won't be olympic runners but they might be self-sabotaging in different more subtle ways in their day-to-day lives yeah i mean i've seen i've seen a lot all through my career like um there was a international runner that was a lot was better than me when she was like you know in her 20s and um every time before training she would ball her eyes out crying and i'm like and i i just like why is she crying before she trains why is she crying before she runs and um, she couldn't control the nerves and whatever and i've seen other people who would be actually thrown up on the start line just through nerves not being able to do it um and you know it's about you know if if, if those girls could have like learned to control that i'm sure they would have went on and, and been you know like commonwealth games at least medal winners you know and so you see you see a lot where um a lot of people kind of if they if they had a little bit more tools to use that they would actually have a better performance and um and and not doubt you know a lot i always say like you know even myself like when when i was on the marathon i'd stand on the start line and the first you know i used to sit there and think why am I doing this? You know, like the minutes before the race, because you know how difficult a task it's going to be. And then, and you know, you get that sort of, I feel sick feeling and it's like, why am I doing that? But some people would then elaborate on that and say, oh, you know, I really don't want to be here. You know, it's going to be so difficult and da-da-da, where myself, if I have a doubt, like, you know, if I sort of sat there and then thought, why am I being here? I'd answer myself and say, because I'm going to have a great race, <laughs> you know, and I just turn it around, right? Like when that little thought came in and the little wheels were turning, I'd be like, oh no, but I'm going to run brilliant and it's going to be so much fun and I'm going to enjoy it and da 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 And so, you know, I was able, you know, I, I was able to sort of always stop myself from going into that little slidey slope of where you start doubting and you always, you know, everyone, you know, human beings, we, you always have something where you start, oh, if only I'd, you know, had another week's training. If oh, I wish I hadn't done that session the day before, you know, and, and a lot of things go on in your head and it's having the confidence to actually say, well, okay, I'm on that start line. Everything's done right. I'm ready to roll. I think some of that though, if I go back to some of your your racing career, that when you went from a, I mean, I, I, I would love to know more about what where your mind was in 91 and two, 
when you had gone and won the 10,000 in the world championships in, in Tokyo. Um, and, and then uh, your coach suggested for you to try the marathon. And one thing that I read or heard of was that there were a couple of marathon runners at the time that were asked about how you would get on in that marathon race. And they said, well, not very well. Yeah. And you, you went straight from that to the marathon. Now, f putting the physiological stuff aside on having to transfer mentally, there must have been some stuff going on there that you, you would have had to be really strong to deal with. Yeah. I mean, you know, like to make a, a thing of how I sort of tick, like all through my life, people have told me. I can't do something like, you know, at school, the, my brains were in my feet. Um, when I sort of go along running, people would always say, oh, you're not good enough. You're, you're not fast enough. You're not strong enough. I've always been told that I was, you know, I couldn't do it. And so whenever anybody throws something at me, my first reaction, and it's just instinctively is like, no, I can't, you know, I'll, I'll do it. I don't, I don't care what it is. I'm going to do it. And, and I was self-coached at the time. I didn't have a coach when I won all my medals in 91. Um, I've coached myself. And so what happened for me was in 88, I got a silver medal in Seoul. And um, I was very, very disappointed. I actually was disillusioned with the sport because I thought to myself, um, you know, how am I going to be able to win a medal with all the drugs and everything that was going on because I was beaten by a Russian and um, yeah. it was all uh, systematic doping and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. And, um, and at the time I thought, you know, what you know, what do I need to do to win? So I, I kind of took a break. I was going to retire from running or whatever and um, they decided, oh, I'm going to try and have a family and whatever and just retire and live happy ever after. But um, for some reason I couldn't get pregnant. And then I decided to come out of training and uh, I, I watched an interview on the telly and there was a girl getting interviewed on the sports show, Jill Hunter, who's a friend of mine. And she was favourite to win the Commonwealth Games in 1990. And I thought, all right, I could win that. And my husband at the time says, well, why are you sitting there saying that? Just go and do it. So I actually went off to Australia and took myself off from not doing any running, much running at all for five months. I took myself off and trained for 12 weeks. Now, I wasn't, I wasn't fit, you know, I was very, very lucky that I won it. I, you know, the race kind of suited me and I ended up winning the Commonwealth Games. And then when I came back, I was like so pumped. I was like, oh yeah, that's me back in my running. And I ended up getting pregnant without even realising and um, that kind of put a spanner in the work then because I was already to get back in my running and all of a sudden I was pregnant. And so uh, I had Ailish and then I had no sponsor or whatever and no guidelines as to what to do when I was pregnant. And I just kept training and keeping things very sort of simple. And then I went and won the 91 Tokyo 10,000 metres. And that was nine months after I had Ailish. And when I won it, I got a phone call from Fred, who I didn't know. I don't know how he got my number or whatever. But he was a race director of New York. And he said, hey, Liz, Fred will be here. Um, I've got two girls that have just been to a press conference and Rosa Mota and Lisa Andoniki, who were the two fastest girls in the world for the marathon that year, were running New York. And in the press conference, they got asked, oh, little Scottish girls just won the Tokyo 10,000 metres. She ever thinks she'll be good at a marathon? And they both turned around and said, no, she won't be able to run a good marathon because she wastes too much energy as a track runner. And Fred said to me, oh, do you want to come and prove them wrong? And I said, yeah, OK. And it was just as simple as that. I was just, uh, you know, because someone said I couldn't do it, I'm like, yeah, I'm going to go and show them. And I had like about seven and a half weeks training. But again, going back to what I said, even as a track runner, I was running 110 miles a week. So it's not like I didn't do miles. You know, I did a lot of miles. The only problem was I hadn't done any long runs. My longest run was 12 miles. I'd never ran over 12 miles. 
So um, in the build up to the seven and a half weeks, I went and ran a couple of 19 miles, felt really easy, felt really good. I thought, yeah, I'm going to take them on. And I just went to New York and um, my whole race plan was to sit in and just run away from them. And that's what I've done. The downfall to that was because I won it. I kind of like signed, I got offered a, a deal from London Marathon to uh, do five London Marathons. So it kind of put me to the marathon too early because if I, if I hadn't been asked to do New York, I, I had no intentions of moving up to the marathon for at least five years. So I kind of like moved up a bit too early than what I would have liked and then left my track running behind. And so I didn't, I didn't fulfill what I really wanted to do on the track. But hey-ho, that's what happens. Just a, on, a, on a, a bit of an aside, I, I've always wondered with a lot of the sports that, that I've worked with and, and in my coaching as rugby, you train at an intensity that's often higher than what you're going to play. So, you know, you, you, it gets gets them confident about that. But the marathon's slightly different in as much as you very rarely actually run the distance before you run the distance. I don't know. There's a lot of a lot of people, several ways to skin a car. A lot of people actually think that you need to do lots over running for the marathon. I don't. I'm not from that ilk. I believe that, you know, for the marathon, you always, you know, I, I always used to take my sort of 10K background, but just add a bit. So, you know, I, I would do a lot of like, um, look like for instance, if I did a, a track session, it would be something like six by a mile. So for my marathon, I would do 10 by a mile, but I would have that much of a difference on my speed, which was what was successful about me. I brought my 10K speed with me. You know, I didn't do a lot of this long, slow, over distance stuff I was always on the belief if you do too many long runs then you're leaving your marathon there um so I always wanted to be fresh for my marathons and things so I did a lot of quality fast sort of 18 19 milers and things like that in one of the earlier podcasts I had with um Tony Minicello who coaches coach Jessica um he would talk about sometimes in training if you set up something like it might be 10 300s that after a couple with one of the athletes if they think that you know they're absolutely flying and look great he, they might he might just adjust it and say that that's enough for you and he'll he'll have that that feel as a coach I guess to know how to judge all of that I'm, I'm wondering because you were you were largely self self-coached and now as a coach is that something that you do if you say you set set up to do six one mile reps and then as a as an athlete or as a coach you've gone do you know what I for whatever reason I'm not going to stick to this plan no, yeah, plans are always adjustable and they have to be adjustable for several reasons, like especially with women. If you're working with women, periods on my days, they've got to be adjustable. Um, but I've never I've never actually cut short a session because the what well, I, I think they've they've reached their optimum. I've cut a session short because I feel they're tired or they're underperforming for some reason and there's something not right. So I've said, like, you know, that's enough, it's enough. We don't push it on. Um, more as a protective rather than a, all right, the job's done. Um, because my programs are all designed to actually follow a plan to peak. So like, you know, most of my athletes will follow a, a, a program to race day. So it's not like I would turn around and say, oh, well, you know, like today I had six, 600. So you did three, so that's enough. I wouldn't do that. But it's a bit different for heptathlon because you've got so many different events. So I could probably see how that works with, with him but as an endurance runner no because there's a means to an end in the process that we do but I have adjusted a lot of programs because of you know I, I work very much a lot on heart rates and things so like you know I might get a phone call in the morning saying you know I went from a steady run and my heart rates five beats six beats higher and I've stopped the session because I feel that they're coming into a sickness or something or there's something not right 
I've adjusted the session because I feel that we needed more strength work rather than speed work. And so, you know, it's always a it's always a working process, you know, a working program. It's not a set in stone. So, you know, I've adjusted quite a bit as I went along actually with the people that I worked with. But you know, um, as I say, I, I'm I'm not set in stone. You know, like I like one program is not the same from month to month to month or year to year to year because that person develops and gets stronger and faster and all sorts of other things. So um, you know, I, I I'm very much um, an adjuster. I like to set programs sort of like eight weekly rather than yearly or any longer. But that eight week program is always reviewed. And that's based upon, I guess, your feel as well as understanding on, on the information you're getting from the athlete. The thing is, you've got to look at the sports. Eh? Different sports are different. Eh? Different disciplines of sports are different. For endurance running, you've got to have a base. You know, you've got to build strength and you've got to build that strength year on, year in. But then at the same time, you've then got to adjust for your race programme, which is, you know, you've got to introduce speed. Even if you're a marathon runner or a, um, a 10K runner or a 1500 metre runner, you've got to build in when you're going to go to your peak performance, but then you've also got to build in your recovery so that you keep building and keep building and keep building. And, you know, I'm, I'm very much a, of the, the school of, you know, if you've got the strength, the speed will come because you're able, like my, my whole ethos of training for endurance is to be so strong that you can hold your top end speed for longer than anybody else. Right. So that's my, that's my sort of ethos in endurance running. It's about having like a really, really strong base and there's certain phases along that base that we start building the pyramid to the top. And so you're planning, I guess, as a coach in the last 12 months with COVID and with the delay of the Olympics, how, how has that been for you? Have, you? have you dealt with it well? Have you pivoted well? I think I've dealt with it well, but I think the athletes have had a lot more bother than the coaches because um, we have like periodization you know, and, and like we like have a very, very short window where we can really build the miles in endurance because in endurance, you've got indoor, you've got cross country, you've got track and then you've got the roads. So it's like an all year thing. So it's not like, you know, you, you've got this like pathway at the top and then a peak and then I have a rest and then I start over again. And it's just like this, you know, because we need to we need to be performing in January. We need to be performing in March. We need to be performing in July and we need to be performing in August. So it's very, very difficult to have that capacity to maintain good performance all year round and that's what's difficult about being an endurance runner you've got to be able to do that so um you know for me it's it's um it's really important that what i felt with covid especially was there was so much uncertainty well for a while we knew there weren't any races so you know it gave me a big big period to just work on a lot longer work that we would never have like I'd, I'd maybe have like six to eight weeks to work on this in a year so you know I said to my athlete okay let's extend that and you know what if a race comes in I can tweak it I can give you three weeks four weeks and we're there but let's you know extend it so that you're still getting the benefit for if say an Olympics is, is cancelled you can still turn and do a marathon or you can still turn and do a road race or you could still turn and do something else if the track season doesn't happen so that was my kind of ethos of was trying to you know keep that person fit and healthy but make them stronger and work on a lot of you know strength and conditioning stuff as well but at the same time always keeping an eye on how things were developing with the covid and this, the possibility of getting competition and we're coming out and, and, you know, my athlete's in a pretty good state at the moment. Like, you know, she, you know the, the, 
I would say probably the best I've seen her health-wise and uh, fitness-wise. So hopefully, fingers crossed, as we move forward for that, we get the benefits of the work that we've been trying to do. Also quite intrigued that you're going to, you know, the Olympics is in Tokyo and a lot of the projects I, I work with in some of the sports, they all talk about the heat and humidity and the and the issues around that and whether that is playing rugby sevens or it's, it's running on the track. Um, now you've had two big successes in heat and humidity and is all of that information about how you managed to overcome deal, not just deal with it, actually, you kind of thrived in it. It looked like that was that was your thing. You, you like running in heat and humidity. How did you come about, about that? Was that all just you thinking? What happened in Tokyo was um, after I had Eilish, I went to Tokyo um, December, you know, during the winter time. So I only went for like maybe nine to, 10, nine to 10 weeks, something like that, just through December, January and February. I was based in Scotland all through um, my build up to um, ah, okay yeah and uh, the, re- the how I how I prepared for it was on a treadmill in a steam room in a sauna with a jacuzzi um, <laughs> room it was like a I, I ran in this little room um, that just had a mirror in front of the treadmill and um, it was hot and it was humid <laughs> that's how I did it and that was just off your own back you decided right here's a problem I'll find a solution I had a little room in the, in the house and, and that's where I did most of my training. I was in our growth. Wow. So so with all the money that people are spending on various sports, perhaps they should just get them in, this, in our growth, get into a sauna and get that treadmill in there. And <laughs> It's about sweat, isn't it? And, and you sweat buckets. So um, I think Yvonne Murray, a, a girl that um, ran at the time I ran as well, I'm sure she ran in a greenhouse as well. You know when she when she uh, used to train, so that was the old fashioned type of thing of doing back then. Well, you've got we've got the you know all the various humidity centres and rooms and stuff and that that go that go on now. Did you ever train at altitude? Tried it, but it didn't work for me. I tried three times, and I just didn't have. I don't think I had the medical like Ailes goes to altitude all the time, works really well. I didn't have the medical input, and for some reason, I was slower at adjusting when I came down and every time I came down, I got it wrong every time. Um, and were you training and, and living at, at high? I would I would go to, um, I went to Fort de I went to Mexico City, went to uh, uh, Provo, tried three different places. Training went really well there, don't get me wrong, like training was really, really well. But I every time coming back down and competing, I just didn't get it right. And and then I thought to myself, what's the point of me going up and training like, you know, six to eight weeks, putting all that effort and I never get it right. So I, I stopped doing it. And that's when I started, you know, that's when I decided I was going to heat and humidity and training in Florida and things like that. And um, that's why I decided to do that. If I can go back um, just a, a few minutes from something you talked about earlier when you, you had those butterflies um, before a race and then you, you flip your thinking and those butterflies suddenly are uh, aligned and flying in formation. Um, one of the things that I found really interesting, uh, when you run, you never have any music on. So no. you, it's just you and your thoughts. Do you, do you think that that actually helps you when it gets tough on the track or it, gets, it got tough on the roads? Yeah, definitely, because you learn to you learn more about your own body and how it's feeling. Like for instance, if I'd be running and I'd get a tight calf, I could talk to myself and it'd ease off. Um, listen to my heartbeat, relax me. Listen to people around me so I know when they're tired and when they're not without looking. So there's a lot of skills that you can learn just by learning what's going on in your own body. So that, that was the reason I purposely didn't use music and things. Again, Liz, you just found that from yourself. That was something that you self self taught. 
it's always something that I preferred myself. That's why I never liked social running. I never liked running in groups because they're always chatting. I couldn't relax because I'm. I like to listen to what I'm doing and and get my stride pattern. And you know, when when I like when you run, you know, you can't force a performance. When you run at your best, you've got to be super relaxed and everything's working in tune. You know, it's like floating on air, um, whatever way you want to look at it. And you know, one of the best ways for that is by you know, it's like a meditation, isn't it? It's like you know, you're using your mindset and you're using your own body to relax and to you know push yourself through the toughest thing that you're going to go through but at the same time you're trying to relax everything while you're doing it would you do that with your athletes and you suggest for any of them that are training and going off on long runs to do it minus headphones well you know it's not for me to tell them we've got to find what works for them and and i know that ailish listens to music because ailish hasn't got um like i've got a very virtual brain she's got a more mathematical logical brain like, you know, she's very, like, very mathematical. Goodness knows where she gets it from. But um, she's, like, I, I'm, I'm you know, our, our mindsets are completely different. So Ailish going for a 12-mile or a 15 or a 16-mile run with no headphones probably get quite bored. Whereas when the music, she gets into a rhythm of the music and she finds the rhythm of the music helps her run. Whereas I'm not that, I'm not that mindset. And I'm not saying that one's right and one's wrong. You've got to find what makes you tick. And I didn't tick that. That didn't rock my boat. That's not what, what worked for me, but it works for Ailish. So, and I and I'm not saying that's right or wrong for her. But um, what I what I do feel is that if you do listen to music, you do miss that connection to how, like, for instance, you can't race and listen to music because it's not allowed. So why use it if you can't race with it? So for me, I'd rather not use it because you know I'm practicing what I'm going to wait to do in the race situation. So. Um, I don't really like to listen to it or whatever. I, I much prefer to just be in my own company. If we go back to 1988 and you kind of, there was a couple of things that, that you mentioned in that race. One was that you, um, you know, you, you left off post that race, you got a little bit disillusioned with the sport in general. And uh, I'd be really keen to, to hear what you think about how you, how you deal with that and, and what you think the current situation is now. I, I, I we don't have a lot of drugs in rugby, but in some of the other sports I'm involved, it, you know, it's yeah. it, it, it seep, it's seeping in. I remember going to the Commonwealth Games in Delhi. I think Ailish was selected, but she had a knee injury, I think, before that event. And I went to watch the Indian 4x400 relay team win gold there. And I think since then, at least three of them have been positive tests. Do you think it's still a big issue now? And back then, I guess you would have known at the start that there's a pretty good chance that there were people to your side that were involved in some of those state-run programs. How did you deal with that? Because it wasn't going anywhere for the rest of your career. They were still going to be running with you. It, it was really, really frustrating. Um, we all knew who who were taking the drugs. You, you knew. You just knew from appearance and everything of what people were looking like, the countries that they were from and what they were involved in and whatever. And in 88, when, when I, you know, I, it did really affect me. And I, you know, and I was like, that's it, I'm giving up and whatever. But then once I stopped feeling sorry for myself, um, so I picked myself up and got back in. Yeah, I actually, you know, I actually did believe that even though they were cheating, I still believed that I was capable of beating them. It's just that I had to treat, like, for instance, before 88, I thought for me to win a medal at an Olympics, I would need to run 31.30, no slower. Like I need to run 31.30 to get, you know, in a medal on the podium. And then when 88 happened, um, I just realised that, you know what, 
that's not good enough. I'm going to have to be in 30, sub, you know, sub 30 minute shape if I want to win anything. And so I went right back to the drawing board and looked at what I would need to do to be a 30 minute runner, you know, just started the whole process of trying to be a 30 minute runner. And when I ran in Tokyo, I was in 30 minute shape. I was in that shape if I had to do it. And luckily for me, I didn't have to do it, but that's what, you know, the process is looking at your event, looking at how you are going to achieve a medal at that and what you pertain that time to be, and then just working on that. And so I had to really individualize it specifically to move forward for me to start saying, well, okay, this is what I need to do. And then once I started doing it in the training, you know, I, I firmly believed that even though I, I was clean and people were cheating, I was in the best shape that I could ever be in and I, I could beat them. And if I didn't believe that, I would have just sat in a corner and cried and never bothered, you know. And there was a few athletes I remember having a conversation with a couple of girls when um, when the Chinese girls came out and ran 29 minutes and just obliterated the the uh, world records. And I remember talking to Alana Myers and uh, Lynn Jennings at the World Cross Country. We were one, two, and three at the World Cross Country, and um, Alana uh, Lynn just says you know what, we just better hang up our spikes and just forget about it. And I, I, I sat there thinking, how could you say that? You know, like, you just adjust, you know, you've got to adjust and, and like, go for it. And again, so I think it's just your own mindset as to what you believe you're capable of. Like, you know, if, if you set yourself a ceiling, then you're always, you know, you're never going to be able to push past that. So I never set a ceiling on me. I, I, I was just very much in the development of like, you know what, if that's what I need to do, how do I do it? Not like, well, I can't do it. It's like, how can I do it? That's the mindset you have to do because there's so much, you know, there's so much out there like uh, drug takers, technology now, you know, like there's new shoes now that are making people run minutes faster than they've ever been able to, um, you know, and, and at the end of the day, you know, if you sit there and say, well, you know, I've not got them, so I can't do it. You just wouldn't get up in the morning and do it. You know, so you, I always I always look at an individual and say, well, do you know what? You've got to be the best version of you. Whatever that is, you could only do your best. And as long as you set out to achieve that and you do it cleanly and, you know, you, you know that it's all through hard work, what else can you do? So if you were on the start line now of, of the London Marathon at your peak and there was someone next next to you that was wearing those Nikes that were the huge platforms, your positive thinking would would dismiss that the negative thoughts about those trainers because of everything else. I'm assuming. No, I'd have them on no matter what brand. <laughs> <I wanted them. laughs> I, I would. I wouldn't give them the advantage over me because at the end of the day, I, I can't believe for one that they allowed that to happen. You know, money talks. Obviously, it, it's it's ruined our sport because you know an athlete will sign to a, a brand whether it's Adidas, New Balance, Nike, whatever. Um, you know, one company cannot sponsor everybody. And, you know, athletes are making a living from being with a, a lesser known brand. And that lesser known brand is never going to be able to compete with that shoe that Nike or, you know, Nike has produced. Um, yeah, there'll be certain companies that can close the gap, but it will probably never, ever be as good as that shoe. And I think it's really unfair. And I, I personally think now that because of the shoe technology that's in place, that especially when you go to a World Championships or an Olympics, that there should be a cap on the, um, the, the shoe 
that everybody there should be one technical shoe that everybody wears and it could be you know whatever color you want but technically it should be the exact same no matter what brand you're running now if you want to run anywhere else whatever yeah go with your nikes and whatever but for the main like you know I've had this conversation, people said, oh, but you know what, in your day, there was Cinders, and then there was Tartan, and then there was Mondo. But what I come back to that is when you're on the, the start line of that race, everybody is on the same surface. We all start on the same start line, but we don't all start in the same standard of shoe. And it's really unfair. It's really unfair that like some people can start on the start line of a 5K or a 10K, look to the side of you and have a girl that's not as fast as you, but will take 30 seconds out of you because they've got a better shoe. And I think it's really sad. I mean, I guess we, we've seen that in swimming with when they had the, the suits and, and that did get banned. Look at cycling. Cycling came out with all the, the new frame bikes and whatever. They realised all the records get broken. They said, no, stop. Everyone that cycles, cycles in the same frame. It's the same with swimming. Everybody that swims, they don't have skins. They stopped it. But in athletics, we're allowed to wear it. Yeah, go ahead, do whatever you want. You know. Yeah. You know? I, the the line is definitely blurring all of this stuff. That's that's. Um... Yeah, it's a bit it's a bit, uh, bit unfortunate, like. But you know what can we do? We're in the we're in the era that we're in now, so we have to just live by it. And hopefully, you know, hopefully these other shoe brands close the gap a bit and. And people run, you know, they're going to run fast times and whatever, but we're just in a totally new era. So, yeah, we, have, we can't do anything about it. So you've just got to, you know, I, I, you know, I wouldn't watch athletics if I kept moaning about it. So, you know, it's a sport that I love and I'm going to still watch it, but I might have a little moan about it, you know? Yeah. Well, that maybe leads me to to the question that's um, that from that, that 11-year-old that had that first experience that obviously then just anchored the rest of your career and your enthusiasm and your love for what you do and now you're coaching. Is there one thing through all of that that you think um, is a kind of golden thread that you still have as a coach that you had as a young athlete and uh, and an older athlete that you would still you still use? I think the the like from when I was a kid right through to even coaching, it's always been about enjoyment. It's something that I love and I never tire of it or bore of it. Um, you know, I'm 56 years of age now and I still go for a run. You know, everything that running gives me, even as a coach, you know, I, I even get the same from coaching for my sport and what I do than what I did as an 11-year-old that just started out putting one foot in front of the other. And um, it's really a fundamental love of what I do. And it's never left me, you know, uh, um, all through all the disappointments and the challenges, um, you know, running to me has been my saving grace and I'm very very fortunate that I've had the career that I've had but I'm really really fortunate that um that I've now got the opportunity to be a coach and I think coaching is the essence of everything because without coaching we don't have the future you know I had a, a coach that inspired me and made me believe when nobody else would make me believe and now it's my turn to do the same with the people that I work for and to make them believe that they can be a better option of what they are. And whatever whatever that is, you know, like to just to go for it and to believe in that they've got the ability to be the best that they can be. That's what running is, you know, it's a simple thing, putting one foot in front of the other. And the benefits that we get from it as well, both mentally and physically. 
I started the conversation with Liz about her origin story, her literal first steps in what would be her lifelong passion and those early moments that filled her with joy and optimism. It finished with what she thinks has threaded through those early days to her heights as an athlete and then on to her chapter now as a coach. Enjoyment. I could see some of the stories she told triggered synapses in the neuropathways that pulled her back into moments that made her smile, changed her breathing. It's at the core of what she does. It's also a very regular conversation with athletes and staff in elite sports. It's easy to let it descend down the list of emotions in our daily lives. Loving what you do can get lost for a whole variety of reasons. I've said it a few times that I fell out of love with rugby in my final few months coaching England. That was a long time ago and I've had time to reflect on that properly. I hadn't actually fallen out of love with the game, but the politics and the egos I was dealing with, I wasn't able to separate that from the job I was supposed to be doing, the job I loved. Some of that I couldn't control, but I haven't let those lines blur again and if anything, it's allowed me to see the joy in what you do more. It helped. My next job was with one of the most joy-driven nations in the world. We all have a degree of that sometimes, and it's always worth remembering why we do what we do. I talked about this at a conference once for a car manufacturer, and afterwards I got an email from one of their employees who had been at the event and listened to my keynote. He had resigned straight after that. He had had a moment of enlightenment that he wasn't in the career he wanted to be, the one he knew he would love. It probably wasn't one of those key outcomes the company had hired me for, but it's a good example of always taking some time to reflect on where you are and if you're paying enough attention to what you value. The show notes will provide lots more details and relevant links to anything we signposted or referenced, and you can find those at benryan.co.uk forward slash podcast and please press that subscribe button on the usual platforms including apple podcasts spotify TuneIn, amazon music and google podcasts and please don't forget to rate and review to help us get noticed by like-minded listeners this has been the ben ryan podcast thanks for listening <laughs>